Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. This morning, I want us to look at the end of Hebrews chapter 10 at verses 36 through 39 in a message I've entitled, An Encouragement to Persevere. For you have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. You have need of patience. The story is told of Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, who was invited to give the commencement address to his alma mater, the all-boys institution called Harrow School, in 1941. It was right in the middle of World War II, and Mr. Churchill, of course, was incredibly busy, but much to their surprise, he accepted the invitation, and on October the 29th, 1941, after much fanfare, advertisement, and acclaim, Mr. Churchill arrived to a packed auditorium. The president of the university gave the introduction and Mr. Churchill stood to his feet to very loud and vigorous applause. He took off his top hat as he mounted the rostrum and looked over the sizable audience as they eagerly waited for the word of wisdom to fall from the lips of this very important man. And Mr. Churchill, after looking over the congregation for a few moments, said in very deliberate terms, young men, never, 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 never give up. And he put his top hat back on his head, exited the stage, passed through the audience, opened the door, and went out and left the auditorium. <laughs> now, I'm tempted to think that perhaps they didn't get their money's worth. <laughs> I mean, they wanted one of his famous oratorical addresses. They were looking forward to a great speech, and it was a single sentence, never, never, never give up. But I suggest for consideration that probably that was the most important message these graduates could have heard. Never give up. Keep going. Persevere. Endure. In fact, that's what our writer is telling us and telling the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, you have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. He wants them to endure, to persevere, 
to be patient. Now that word patience is interesting. There are actually two different Greek words translated by the one English word patience in the New Testament. And the first one has to do with being patient toward people. It's so important that we be long-suffering with the imperfections of others, patient toward people. Many people don't have much wiggle room, much margin for error when it comes to the faults and foibles of other people. That's important, patience toward people. But the other word translated patience in the New Testament is the Greek word hupomone, which means to abide under, and it speaks of patience toward circumstances. In other words, it means that you bear with adversity, continuing on in the path that you've been called to travel. It's akin to our modern term, perseverance. I remember at one particular job site in my early secular career, seeing a sign next to the photocopy machine of a frog that was uh, being swallowed by a large pelican or stork. And the frog had his hands around the pelican's neck, though his head and part of his body was going down the throat. He had a grip on the bird's neck and refused to let go. Perseverance is the thought. Keep on keeping on. Never give up, give out, or give in. And the New Testament uses this word, hupomone, and it translates it as patience on several occasions, endurance on several occasions, and even in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, on one occasion, perseverance. Persevere in prayer, he tells us in that passage. Keep praying. Continue trusting. Never let go of your Lord. Never abandon your faith. Hold out and hold on and hold up underneath the afflictions of life. This word speaks of constancy in trial. The refusal to surrender, what we might call staying power. It's keeping on, keeping on, or as Texans where I grew up used to call it, that young man has stick to I don't know if you've ever heard that expression. He has stickability or stick to He's able to, like a postage stamp, stay connected to his task until he reaches his destination. Now the fact is, my friends, this is a rare quality in our modern world. Today, the attitude is one of instant gratification. Everybody wants to have the entire spectrum of blessings at one time. And that's especially true so far as many young people are concerned. Our generation quickly tires of that which is difficult or does not produce immediate results. People today are soon bored with the task and ready to go on to the next thing. It's a symptom of the age in which we live. The whole idea of a long obedience in the same direction sounds very foreign to many people today. But I like what Charles Spurgeon said on one occasion. He said it was by perseverance that the snail reached the ark. <laughs> And my beloved, it will be by perseverance that you and I also are faithful to our Lord. But just because it's hard, don't give up on it. 
Somebody once said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting, but it has been found difficult and left untried. Yes, my beloved, stickability or endurance, a long obedience in the same direction, patience is needed today. You have need of patience. Now, when I read verses like this, I insert the first person pronoun in the text. I have need of patience, and I would encourage you to do the same. Read your Bible existentially. Put yourself into the story, if you please, and take the imperatives like this one personally for you. Yes, you and me. I have need of patience. That is, I need to abide under the burden and to stick to it, to keep on keeping on, not to give out, to give in, or to give up. And that's a lesson that my seventh grade track coach, Coach Alford, taught me very early in my career. We were at a track meet in the month of March in West Texas. And if you've ever been in West Texas in March and April, you know that the weather is very unpredictable. On this particular Saturday morning at 8 a.m., the first race was the 110-yard intermediate hurdles. And Coach Alford had entered me into that race, and it was about 35 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And these hurdles were 30 inches high, and I was about 40 inches tall in seventh grade. <laughs> now, that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but I wasn't much higher than the hurdles. And why he thought that I could be a hurdler was a mystery to me, and it still is to this day. But as the starter's gun sounded, we scampered to our feet and began to run down the cinder track, and I cleared the first hurdle, and I cleared the second hurdle. And being a bit fleet of foot at that age, I was um, in first place. But as we came to the third hurdle, and I lifted my leg to go over it, my toe caught the top of the hurdle and I took a tumble to the ground. When I got up, my knees were bleeding and my elbows were bleeding and my forehead was bleeding with little pieces of cinder in my wounds. And the other runners, of course, passed me by and finished the race and I walked off the track dejectedly. And I looked up and saw six foot four, 250 pound Coach Alford sprinting across the infield. And I thought, he's worried about me. <laughs> he's coming to comfort me in my distress. But mercy was the farthest thing from Coach Alford's mind. That big, tall lineman in college football, now turned middle school track coach, got in my face and said, Goins. Let me tell you, never, ever again walk off the track without finishing the race. Even if it's next week before you finish, you keep going. And it was a lesson that I needed to learn. The perseverance is needed in every dimension of life, isn't it? If you're going to stay with the job until it's done, you need stickability, this attitude of perseverance. But I think it's important for us to say that biblical perseverance is not the same as a lift yourself by the bootstraps, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, secular mentality. Biblical perseverance springs from faith in God. We keep going not because 
we believe in ourselves or we just have a little bit of grit about our character. But we keep going because we trust God to be true to his promise and to be with us every step of the journey until we reach the end. The just shall live by faith, in other words. And this is such an important message for us today, just as it was for the Hebrews in the first century. I've told you the background behind this book so many times in the course of this lengthy study, but I think it's important to emphasize it once again, that these Hebrews were on the brink of defecting from their newfound faith in Christ. Just like a soldier who gets tired in boot camp or basic training and says, I think I'll quit. These Hebrews, who were new converts for the most part, and had come to embrace Christ, were beginning to experience certain opposition and pressure from their community. That is, their Jewish employers were letting them go. Their Jewish family members were disowning them. Many of them were suffering ridicule and public shaming. And the pressure was so great that some of them were questioning their commitment of faith to Jesus. And the apostle writes in this passage to encourage them not to give up and not to quit serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as the second coming of our Lord gets closer and closer, my beloved, the temptation to just abandon ship, to throw in the towel, to hang up the cleats will be greater and greater, I believe, because it's going to be increasingly unpopular and inconvenient to serve Jesus as this world grows darker and more godless. Now, it's never been easy to be a Christian, but I believe that as the second coming of Jesus Christ nears, it will be increasingly important for us to admonish one another and exhort one another to say, brother, don't cast away your confidence. Don't throw your shield down in the middle of the battle, but keep on keeping on to encourage one another to persevere. This is such a crucial virtue for the Christian. Galatians 6, 9 says it like this, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. You know, that verse spoke to my heart at a certain point in my ministry. I felt like my labors were meeting with a lack of success everywhere I turned. And one day, listening to a sermon, the preacher quoted that verse, and the Holy Spirit applied it with power upon my soul. And it spoke to me, don't get weary in well-doing. Now, are you doing something that is proper and appropriate and honoring to God? If it's well-doing, don't become weary in well-doing. For in due season, that is, harvest is coming, in due season, you shall reap if you faint not. Our problem is we want to go out the day after we sow the seed and dig in the dirt to see if it's beginning to germinate and to sprout, right? That's one reason perhaps my gardens have never produced much is because I'm impatient. But you know, the husbandman, says James chapter 5, that is the farmer, must have long patience because you don't plant a crop one day and reap the harvest the next. It's due season. You must wait for the proper time. Harvest time comes months after sowing the seed. In due season you shall reap, if you faint not. And there's the rub. That's why we need to be encouraged to persevere. So what we have in this passage is an encouragement to persevere. Don't be weary. That's an encouragement to endure. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 
also suggests the same thought when he says, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. My beloved, I would say that to you this morning. Stand fast, always abound in the work of the Lord. You say, I don't see much evidence of profit. I don't see that what I'm doing is making any difference. Well, my beloved, we're not always the best judge of that, but the Lord knows that the seed that we're sowing, it will produce a harvest to some degree in time to come. Therefore, never, never, never give up. Now, this word hupomone is one of the key words in the book of Hebrews. On 12 occasions, the writer emphasizes patience or endurance. And again, this is not the kind of patience toward the imperfections of other people in this book. You'll find other passages in the New Testament that talk about that. This is the word which means perseverance. Abiding under, remaining under the pressure without surrendering in defeat. And this is a familiar term in Hebrews again. The word endure is translated eight times from that Greek word hupomone in the book of Hebrews. And there are four references to this word patience. And probably the verse that most of us would say is the most familiar is in the 12th chapter where he says, let us run with what? Patience. It's the same word, the race that is set before us. That is, let's run with endurance. And that teaches us, and we'll emphasize this more as we get to that verse, the Christian life is not a sprint, but it's a marathon. Now, I hope you know that. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Brother Mike, I am 70 years of age, or I'm 50 years of age, or I'm nearing 90, and I'm really tired. I've been running a long time. Well, my friends, I'm so glad that you've made it thus far. But let's not cast away our confidence at this point in our personal pilgrimage because the finish line is in view. Just keep going. Heard a story about a man that uh, spent $100,000 back in the early 1900s to dig for gold somewhere in Europe. And he had spent all of this money until he was at the point of bankruptcy and finally he abandoned the project. And someone else came behind him and just a few feet more in the tunnel that he had digged through that mountain, they struck gold ore. They found a vein of gold that was very profitable. Yes, my friends, never give up. You probably heard the story of Florence Chadwick, the first woman to ever swim the English Channel. On her first attempt, Chadwick swam for hours in very frigid temperatures. The water was very cold. She risked hypothermia. And there were numerous dangers in the water she swam. And the fog was dense. And the little vessel that floated beside her and to ensure her safety, the people inside it continued to encourage her, keep going, keep going. But finally, in exhaustion, she asked to be taken out of the water turns out only about 150 meters before she reached the shore. But because the fog was so thick and she couldn't see how close she was, she had given up in despair. A few months later, she attempted again and the conditions in which she swam were very much the same. But on this occasion, with the understanding that the goal was in view, that is, she knew that it was there, even though she couldn't see it necessarily. She continued to swim, 
and she became the first female to swim the English Channel. That's what he's telling us in Hebrews, be patient. And by the way, Hebrews isn't the only passage where this message to the church appears in the New Testament. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see the same encouragement, like James chapter 1, verse 3. Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations or trials. Now, he didn't say be happy about it, but he says put it on the positive side of the ledger. Obviously, when you're in trouble, when your life is filled with tribulation, you can't be happy about that. But he says, I want you to count it as, like an accountant would. Put it on the positive side of the ledger. This is something beneficial. It's an asset, not a liability. He says, count it as all joy, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. When you go through troubles, it teaches you to be stronger, to persevere. Isn't that true in your life? Where have you learned stick to Hasn't it been through the low points and the valleys that you've traveled? Hasn't it been through the seasons in which you were very burdened that you have gotten stronger? Somebody says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I do know that under the blessing of God, it can do that. That trials may have under God's blessing a sanctifying influence in our lives. And I think I can tell you today that the most important lessons I've learned in my life have been learned in the furnace of affliction. I would not be near the man I am today, even though there still remaineth much more land to be possessed, had I not gone through some of the difficulties and the troubles that I've seen. At the time, I thought they would be the end of me, but my beloved, may I say, each test has made me a bit stronger and has made me a bit more able to persevere. Tribulation. The trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience, let it have its perfect, that is, its perfecting, its maturing work. Don't cut the process short, in other words. Instead of praying when you go through trials, Lord, how can I get out of this trouble? We should pray, Lord, what can I get from this trouble? What can I learn? What is the lesson that you want me to learn? Trouble works patience. That's the same lesson in Romans 5, 3, right? Tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. Somebody says, Brother Mike, I, I, I've learned not to pray for patience, because when I prayed for patience, the Lord gave me tribulation. Tribulation works patience. It brings about patience. Well, I understand that. But may I say, if you want to be stronger... If you don't want to be like so many in our modern world who operate by the principle of instant gratification, looking for immediate results, if you understand that we're in a long-distance race and that we must bear the difficulties of the moment because of our hope that happy times and blessings await us in the future, if you have that perspective, dear friends, it's right to want to be stronger and of course, the way that we learn that, again, is through tribulation. Tribulation worketh patience or perseverance. And patience works or brings about experience, that is, godly character. And experience makes you more hopeful. Now, I think that's an attitude I see in many of you here this morning. I appreciate the optimism 
that I see in your lives. But you know, the optimism of the Christian is not like the optimism of a positive thinking guru like Zig Ziglar or Norman Vincent Peale. The Christian optimism, my beloved, is rooted in the character of God. We, I have a positive and bright outlook on the future because I know that the Lord is sovereign. He's in control and that he's coming back and that whatever happens here is not going to affect what God has laid up for them that love him and that he loves with an everlasting love. My beloved, you, your best days are not behind you. May I say that? Our best days are ahead of us. The best is yet to come. Isn't that the lesson in John chapter 2 when Jesus turned the water to wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee? He saved the best wine until the last. And I'll tell you, my beloved, he has saved the best wine until the end of your journey. The best is yet to come. Heaven is awaiting you. And that's really what the writer in Hebrews 10 is saying to us. He's saying, brethren, don't cast away your confidence. Don't surrender on the battlefield right now. Don't throw your shield down and give up because it has great recompense of reward. Payday is coming someday. That is, you will be compensated. It has great recompense. Do you see the word compensate and recompense? God will repay you. You say, well, how will he repay me? Well, just one glimpse of him in glory will all the toils of life repay. The first sight of the Savior, and you'll forget all about your troubles down here. I believe that. Can you imagine what it will be when you first see Jesus in heaven? I've seen some glorious sights in this world. I've had a few moments when uh, suddenly I saw a beautiful meadow or lovely flower and it just gave me pause and I had to just stop and say, that is the most lovely thing I've seen in a long time. I mean, it, it just gave me peace. I'm saying you can multiply that 100-fold. And when you get to heaven, my beloved, you will forget all about your toils and trials here. Yes, indeed, it's that hope that gives us patience. That's what I'm saying. First Thessalonians 1 verse 3, Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians for their work of faith, your labor of love, and for your patience of hope. Hope gave them the incentive to persevere. Patience of hope. My beloved, it's our hope in what is awaiting us. Now, you say, Brother Mike, I wish something was waiting for me right now in this world. There's reason to hope for this life. But if our hope is limited to this world, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, he didn't say we don't have hope for a brighter day right now. I believe as long as God is on the throne, there's not such a thing as a hopeless situation. I'm telling you today that one of his names in Romans 15, 13 is the God of hope. He's the God who because he exists, gives us reason to be optimistic about the future. He's the God of hope. And if I get the news today that he's been deposed and the devil has kicked him out of heaven and God is no longer in power and in control and the devil's in charge, if I ever heard that news and it was credible, I'd have to tell you I'd have no reason to look forward to the future. But as long as there's a God on the throne of the universe, there's reason to be hopeful for tomorrow. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, as the hymn writer says. Isn't that a wonderful line in that hymn? God gives us strength for right now 
and bright hope for tomorrow. Christian people ought to be the most optimistic and hopeful people so far as the future is concerned. We have a bright outlook on tomorrow. You say, Brother Mike, I'm, I've been listening to the news. I don't have a very hopeful outlook for our country. Well, I'm telling you, dear friends, I don't in men. But you know, God is able to do the impossible with men. My hope is in the Lord. Now, whether he's pleased to do so or not, whether it's his will, I don't know. But I do know this, he is able. And as long as you and I can keep our focus on the Lord, we can be hopeful. And if you ever give up hope, my friends, may I say you've lost your incentive to keep going, to persevere. You know, someone goes to the doctor and the doctor uh, says you need surgery. Like our dear brother had surgery this last week. And the details of the procedure that they plan to perform are very frightening. They say, we're going to cut you open and we're going to attach wires into your heart muscle. You know, I mean, that's mind boggling. Or we're going to operate on the tenderest part of your body, the human eye. And you say, Brother Goins, I don't, uh, no thank you. I think I'll, I'll walk away. But you know, the only reason you would go through a procedure like that is because of what? The hope of recovery, right? The hope of improvement. It's hope that helps you to endure the pain and the inconvenience and the financial investment and all of the difficulties associated with the procedure and the lengthy recovery afterwards. It's the hope that you will be better or improved. It's hope that helps you to endure the moment. And that's what our text is saying. You have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Now, God has promised us wonderful things in the future. He's promised things for our lives right now. In this world, we can be hopeful because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's Hebrews 13.5. That's just two chapters later. God has promised us that he will strengthen us and be with us and we can keep going because of the hope that we have in him, that he will keep his word. He is faithful that promised. My friends, may I say that the best that this world has to offer is a mere foretaste of the bliss that is waiting for us over there. Though our lives right now seem to be all important to us, one of the attitudes that the patriarchs that we're going to read about in Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter, one of the attitudes they had in their lives was that they were strangers and pilgrims in this world. I think it's so vitally important that we recover the pilgrim perspective of the patriarchs and prophets and the early Christians. They did not see this world as all-important, all-encompassing. They did not think of their lives right here as the ultimate in God's blessings. Health and wealth are blessings from God, but they're not the best blessings that God has for his people because the most healthy person will eventually pass away if Jesus tarries. And the most wealthy person, my friends, will have difficulty holding on to their silver and gold. But I'm telling you, there are Blessings that cannot be corrupted. Treasures in heaven that cannot be corrupted by moth and rust. Peace in your heart. The fellowship of the saints. 
an understanding of Jesus and what he's done for your poor soul. The prospect of being with him and with the redeemed throng forevermore where the devil will never enter into that place. Oh, my beloved, those are the best blessings. If you have an understanding of the gospel of grace, may I say that is, that is worth more than all the gold in Fort Knox. It's worth more than all the treasures that this world has to offer. And our writer in Hebrews is saying, brethren, in just a little while, he that shall come will come and will not tarry. So what the writer is doing in Hebrews is he's encouraging us to be patient. When you turn to the book of Revelation, you see the emphasis on this concept of patience again. Look at Revelation 1.9. Notice how he addresses the seven churches in Turkey or Asia Minor. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. Now, John was an apostle. He was important. And he's writing to just common, ordinary believers like you and me. But John says, I'm your brother. He doesn't say, I'm your ruler. He says, I'm your brother. He puts himself on the same level. And he says, I am your companion in trouble, tribulation. Now, were the people that John was writing to in these seven churches in Asia Minor suffering? Yes, indeed. If you read Revelation 2 and 3, you're going to see that they were suffering persecution. They had pressure, opposition from the unbelieving pagan world around them. They were suffering. Some of them had even been imprisoned. There was one church that had a church member who had already died as a martyr. So they were suffering tribulation. But John says, I'm over here on Patmos Island, busting rocks in the rock quarry. You know, John had been sent, he'd been exiled as a capital offender to the empire. He had been exiled to Patmos Island as a prisoner. And while he was there, God gave him this revelation. He opened the windows of heaven and showed him these wonderful visions. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day, you remember? And he was told to write many of these things down and send them to the seven churches. And here's how he addresses them. I, John, am your brother and I'm your companion in tribulation. Just as you're suffering, I'm suffering and I'm your companion in the kingdom. That is, I share your same commitment to Christ's church and in the patience of Jesus Christ. That is, I'm trying to persevere just like you're trying to persevere in the work of the Lord. I like that. Patience. Later in Revelation 13, 10, he will talk about the mark of the beast, which is a scary passage. But he says God will judge him. Verse 10 of Revelation 13, he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. Just as he has put you in bondage, I'm going to put him in bondage, God says. And he that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. God is promising retribution to your persecutors. Watch this. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. The church continues to trust God and therefore they're able to persevere. Here's the patience and the faith of the saints, knowing that God will keep his promise. So the key verse in our passage is verse 35. Cast not away your confidence. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't fall away. Don't slip into apostasy. But instead be patient. Because in just a little while, after you've done the will of God, you'll receive the promise. He that shall come will come. I love how the apostle points them to their future hope. 
the future consummation of all things. And New Testament writers never seem to tire of pointing believers to the future hope of the Savior's return as the means of encouraging them to be faithful right now. He says, yet a little while, he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. Now you may be aware of the fact that this passage is strangely similar to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk is not really a prophecy, but it's a personal experience. His name, Habakkuk, strange name, isn't it? Habakkuk, his name means the wrestler, the wrestler. And what you find him doing in his book is wrestling. He's wrestling with God. He's perplexed in chapter 1. He's asking the Lord, Lord, why are your people suffering while the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, a more godless nation than Judah and Jerusalem is, why are they being used to take us into captivity when they're worse than we are? Lord, the scales of justice don't seem to balance here. He's perplexed. He's wrestling over this question of why and how long. And if you come to chapter 2 of Habakkuk, you'll see that he says this in verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon my tower. So I'm just going to Position myself on my watchtower, and I will watch to see what God will say unto me and what I shall answer when I'm reproved. So he's waiting for God to answer, waiting for God to answer. He's wrestling with these questions, the apparent injustice of why evil is winning and God's people seem to be on the short end of justice. And he says, I'm just going to wait on the Lord. And by the way, dear friends, that's a good practical lesson for us. When you don't know what to do, it's best not to do anything. Just wait on the Lord. Preacher once said, Lord, I, I have two questions. Should I go or should I stay? And he said, the Lord answered me back and said, go not, neither stay. <laughs> well, which one is it? You know, go not, neither stay. The best thing to do when you're getting that kind of an answer is don't do anything. Right? Just to wait on the Lord. I will set me upon my tower and watch to see what he will say unto me. And he said, the Lord answered me. And here's what the Lord said. Write what I'm about to say to you down and put it upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. I want you to write this down for other people because they will need it in the future. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. What I'm going to tell you has to do with the future. Habakkuk. But at the end, it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it. Do you see the similarity in this language to our text? Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. That's what our text says. Yet a little while, he that shall come, will come, and will not tarry. He says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. The proud Babylonians in this verse are set in contrast to the just, to the righteous people of God. The proud man is confident in himself. His soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. But, you see the contrast? The just man shall live by faith. Here's the question in Hebrews 10. How shall we then live? If, my friends, we are suffering and life is difficult as it was for these Hebrews and it's not popular to follow Jesus Christ and you're suffering recrimination and persecution because of it and this passage tells us that these people were verse 32 and 33 of Hebrews 10 says 
in the former days in, after you were illuminated, after the light was turned on in your understanding and you were converted to the gospel, you endured a great fight. He said, I want you to remember how hard it was early on, partly while you were made a gazing stock. That means that you were publicly shamed, public shaming. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, the Christian is a spectacle to this world. You see, that's what was happening. They were being ridiculed and shamed. You were made a gazing stock. People would point at you on the street and talk to each other and say, that's one of those Christians over there. Nobody likes to be exposed and talked about. That was what was happening to these Christians. He says, brethren, remember after you were baptized and converted to the gospel, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, that is, not only were they ridiculed, but there was open hostility against them. And then secondly, they suffered because they were considered, even when they were not being persecuted like this, yet they were deemed guilty by association, partly while you became companions of them that were so used. Even when you weren't personally going through trouble, you were visiting your brethren in prison who were incarcerated for their faith and Others would say, did you know he went to see him? He's, he's guilty by association. Furthermore, he says, some of you had experienced vandalism. Verse 34, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Your goods were spoiled. What does that mean? Your houses were ransacked. Your pantries were turned over. Your preserves were opened up and poured on the ground. People spurred graffiti all over your house because you were a Christian. He says, but you took it joyfully. I mean, these people were suffering, but he says, you took it joyfully. He doesn't say they were happy. He said, oh, isn't this wonderful? He, but he means that they took it with patience and it didn't affect their hearts and their attitudes because they knew in heaven they had a better and an enduring substance. I love what Matthew Henry says about this verse. He says, heaven will make rich amends for all we might lose or suffer here. In heaven, we shall have a better life, a better estate, better liberty, better society, better hearts, better rest. Everything will be better. Don't you love that? You know that you have in heaven something better. That's one of the key words of Hebrews, better. He says, brethren, because you know that you have something waiting for you, I want you not to forget your future hope. The future consummation of all things, when Jesus comes, and therefore the just shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2. His soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. He's proud and arrogant. He's not trusting in God, but the just man in contrast, the one who belongs to God because he's made them righteous, through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, shall live by faith. And he's about to go into the 11th chapter and show us what that looks like. People who endured, who persevered, who were patient, even though they had problems, yet they kept on keeping on. Because the just man shall live by faith. Somebody says, Brother Mike, how does that fit with your theology as a primitive Baptist? I, did, I thought you lived by grace, not by faith. He doesn't say the just man will get life by faith, but he gets a living by faith. Now, I got life 
a few months prior to July 19th, 1962. But ever since then, I've been trying to get a living. We used to ask folks in Texas, or folks would ask each other, what do you do for a living? You ever heard that question? What do you do for a living? He didn't say, what do you do to become alive, but what do you do to sustain life and to keep going? The just shall get a living. How are we supposed to live in this world? You say, Brother Mike, I'm looking all around and I just, I'm going to give up. Well, then look up by faith and see your God and remember his promises. For the just man lives in this world by faith in the Son of God. What I've said this morning can be summarized in these few words. Young man, never, never, never. Never give up. I hope you will take that message to heart today. Ooh.